lives in a Dana Skellington. But wait a minute, I'm so thin and all these aches and pains could be a chance for me. Wages if you'll just hang from this gate. A yard is passing, lots of food and money come my way. Oh, lucky man am I. But who's this telling me you're far too much, too fat to be a ghost beyond your way? So here I am. Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard. That was the Idle Race and the Skeleton and the Roundabout, a single from 1968. It's one of the highlights from the new box set, Climb Aboard My Roundabout, the British Toy Town sound, 1967-74. And as I often do, I've got David Wells here, compiler of that set, to talk about this wonderful compilation. And as we always do, David, thank you for being here. No, it's a pleasure, Jason. Thank you. It's always interesting to explore the theme of um, of each set that you do, and uh, this is a particularly interesting one because you've got, for me, two slants on psychedelia. You've got potentially an American garage sound. You've got the English one, which was often more childlike, but in terms of the toy town genre, that goes deeper into that childlike aspect. Yes, that's right. I mean, for me, it starts really with something like Penny Lane, where you've got these kind of character vignettes of um, these ordinary everyday people going about their business, which normally before then wouldn't have been a subject for a song, really. But it also coincided with, with the sort of heightened ambition of psychedelia. So you then get a more widescreen production. You get session musicians coming in on grass and woodwind, and it spreads throughout the uh the british pop music scene in a way i mean we haven't obviously been able to include everything but people like vince hill recorded in a similar vein petula clark stuff kind of some of that fits the brief as well and it, it's just that like i said that heightened ambition little traces of, of music hall as well which obviously all those musicians grew up with george harrison was famously a member of um, george formby's fan club um and at the same time and i think it is just coincidental you you had gordon murray's kind of Tramptonshire trilogy uh which as we'll hear later on um kind of almost informed what was happening with it, or it mirrored anyway the developments uh, in pop music at the same time in this country anyway i'm sure the the Americans were horrified by some of the uh, things that were coming out uh, of England. Um, there wasn't really an American equivalent, but uh, 
it, it does make it more provincial, more parochial, and that that's kind of like uh, an intriguing thing, really. Absolutely, and uh, as we often do, this set captures well-known artists, potentially before they, they had great success, as well as some lesser-known, and we, we start off with a pair, but firstly, one of the, the 70s biggest acts, or the, the driver behind that, um, Jeff Lynne, uh, with his very early band, as uh, quite young at the time, Idol Race, and uh, really interesting to see the comparison between ELO and the Idol Race, because there were elements of the Idol Race that did come out in ELO later. That's right. I think I mentioned in the sleeve notes that um, eventually, Electric Light Orchestra, they weren't particularly successful in England for several years. They did have multi minor hits, but um, they weren't huge and like that. And it was only when, when Jeff Lynne began aping the, the stuff he'd done in the 60s, with the, things like uh, Mr. Blue Sky and, and Horace Wimp, which were very similar kind of, I would say, toy town um, tales, really, um, that went back to his childhood. Uh, so, yeah, that that is an odd thing. Um, and I know subsequently he said that Idle Race tracks sound really odd to him, the uh, the song composition, but, but really they're no different than what he was doing 10 years later. Yeah, and the subject matter of that first track as well, Magic Roundabout in that era, very well-known and uh, inspiring the uh, those who might be on some uh, extra substances watching. I, I think so. I think uh, also um, it was part of an era when everybody had the share, same shared experiences. There were like two, three um, TV stations, one uh, pop channel after the pirates had been killed off. And so I think everybody heard and saw the same things. So I think when you when you mention uh, Magic Roundabout, yeah, I remember that um, every day. Uh, same as Jack and Ori being on, and it had that kind of woozy off kilter fairground sound. And bands like the Ida Race used that, and and bands like Jason Crest as well. Um, there is a strong Magic Roundabout feel to their music, which again sounds stupid when you say it out loud, but um, it was all grist to the mill. Like I say, everybody was listening and watching the same things. I teased it at the start in relation to a second big name, and there isn't uh, one that doesn't come much bigger than David Bowie, and we see David in his early guys on his first 1967 LP, Uncle Arthur, and... This was when Anthony Ewley uh, seemed to be quite a big influence. Um, there were darker elements of, in relation to his, his lyrical uh, themes that potentially came out from things that he was reading and, and, and bits of Velvet Underground coming in as well. What, what always fascinates, fascinates me about this period of Bowie is those two completely contrasting influences, Lou Reed and Anthony Newley. So at the time, same time he was doing this uh, first solo album uh, with Uncle Arthur on it, he was recording um, a version of I'm Waiting for My Man uh, after his manager had brought back uh, home uh, an acetate of the first of Underground album. So, I mean, you think, how do those things coexist? So Uncle Arthur, yeah, a lovely little kind of children's song, really, about this slightly um, odd character who could have been drawn from an early Keith Wardhouse novel, really. Um, there's the character Uncle Mad in, in There's a Happy Land, which has a similar kind of slightly disturbed outlook. And Uncle Arthur, it mentions in the lyrics, still reads comics, follows Batman. But Bowie, at the same time, was 19 years old, and he was a big Batman collector himself of memorabilia. So, so that's, that's what he'd asked his manager, Ken Pitt, to, to bring back from America when he went over and he brought back the Velvet Underground album as well as various um, Batman memorabilia. So, so 
yeah, it's it just that combination of influences is so bizarre. And he could easily have made it as that kind of the new Anthony Newley. So maybe it was as well he didn't make it at the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, songs like Love You Till Tuesday have certainly got a commercial edge. But they are very poppy, yeah, they are very commercial. And they Love You Till Tuesday was reviewed by Sid Barrett in the new music papers at the time, wasn't it? And he was... Uh, Say about, yeah, the Pink Floyd light jokes and all that, but uh, it could easily have had a, a novelty hit with something like that or, or The Laughing Gnome. And I wonder then if we'd have had the Gene Genie a few years later. Yeah, poss- possibly not. It's such a different world. But then, like I say, he, he was ex- coexisting in two worlds. One wasn't successful, and, and then, you know, the other one eventually was. Obviously, the Lou Reed influence... Um, took over by about 71 72 so yeah it could have been he could have had a completely different career strikes the bell for five o'clock uncle arthur closes shop screws the tops on all the bottles turns the lights out locks it up climbs across his bike and he's away Cycles past the gasworks, past the river Down the high street, back to mother It's another empty day Uncle Arthur likes his mummy Uncle Arthur still reads comics Uncle Arthur follows Batman Round and round the rumours fly How he ran away from mum On his 32nd birthday Told her that he'd found a chum Mother cried and raved and yelled and fussed Arthur left her no illusion Brought the girl round, saved confusion Sally was the real thing, not just lust Uncle Arthur vanished quickly Uncle Arthur and his new bride Uncle Arthur follows Sally Round and round goes Arthur's head Hasn't eaten well for days Little Sally may be lovely But cooking leaves her in a maze Uncle Arthur packed his bags and fled Back to mother, all's forgiven Serving in the family shop He gets his pocket money, he's well fed Uncle Arthur past the gasworks Uncle Arthur past the river Uncle Arthur down the high street Uncle Arthur follows mother Next day we have Tony Hazard and Ha Hazard the Clown Tony was in um, a real groove of writing hit songs that were by other artists in this period and this is a great example yeah, I've always said that he's very similar to Graham Goldman in terms of writing hits for everybody else, but not quite being able to uh, to get one in his own right as a performer. Ha uh, Ha said the clown. It's an interesting album, Tony Hazard sings Tony Hazard. It came out in 69, but it's mainly the original demos of songs that he then gave away to people like Lulu and the Tremolos. Um, and this is apparently the original demo of... Ah ha said, said the clown, uh, and then Jerry Braun, who, who represented him, his songs, and also handled Man for Man, gave it to them, and they had a massive hit, obviously. Yeah, was it a minor hit in the States for the Yardbirds? It was recorded and issued in the States by the Yardbirds, I think under duress, shall we say, from Mickey Most. But I don't know if it was a particularly big hit or not. Um, 
was just associated being born and bred in this country. I always associate the song with Man for Man, really. A plug for my piece on Tony in Record Collector earlier this year, and he's got um, vinyl release uh, as well as uh, CD of, of demonstration, which I think goes back to the original tapes of uh, Tony's demo in the 60s and uh, well worth a listen to. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, interesting you call it de- uh, demonstration because I know it as Tony Hazard sings Tony Hazard, but I th- is it one of those albums that had a different title on the uh, the cover maybe to the sleeve? I think Jerry Brown would have insisted on Tony Hazard sings Tony Hazard to get across, um, draw attention to the fact that, that Hazard was a massively successful songwriter. So therefore Hazard sings Hazard is a fairly straightforward title. Take a ride to a show in town Hear the jokes, have a drink And a laugh at the clown In the world see a girl With a smile in her eyes Never thought I'd be brought down By her lies In the trance watch you dance To the beat of the drums Past the now sweating brow I'm all fingers and thumbs Wonder why I hit the sky when she blows me a kiss In the wild run a mile I'm regretting all this Ha-ha, said the clown As the king lost his crown As the night being tied on romance Ha-ha, said the clown Is it bringing you down That you've lost your chance? Close the show, wave the people goodbye Grab my hat, grab my coat, look that girl in the eye yeah. Wish you home, what's your phone number, stop fooling round Could have died, she replied, I'm the wife of the clown Ha ha, said the clown, as the king lost his crown As the night being tied on romance Ha ha, said the clown Bringing you down That you've lost your chance Ha ha, said the clown As the king lost his crown Is the night being tied on romance Ha ha, said the clown Is it bringing you down That you've lost your chance Ha ha, said the clown now we uh, we go to one of the key tracks of the era, certainly now associated with what is now known as Toy Town. We have Keith West, produced by Mark Wirtz, uh, excerpt from a teenage opera. Yes, as I, as I mentioned in the notes, to me this is the Citizen Kane of uh, Toy Town. <laughs> yeah, just a completely over-the-top production. I mean, it, it really it defines the genre, and I, I had to put it at the end of a CD because... Anywhere else, it would have swamped everything around it. Everything that came after it, you can't really follow it. Although you are choosing to. <laughs> <laughs> right in the uh, middle. So yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But um, it's some, some records it's difficult to be subjective about. This was a massive hit and everywhere when I was like seven years old. And at that point, you don't really have any critical faculties and it's everywhere. And I can't really be objective um, about it. It's just, to me, part of my childhood. Yeah, yeah, what can you say? It, it's just so over the top, the arrangement. It must have sounded 
so strange coming out, out on the radio for the first time in, in early 67, like nothing else that was around. And laid it on with the, the kids singing on it as well. Well, yes, apparently um, uh, Mark Wirtz played it for the MI Bigwigs, bigwigs and, and they said, are you mad? You know, you can't, you're not going to have a... a um, record children's singing in the middle of it but then obviously they changed their mind when it was a massive hit but they still didn't really re- support him you know he didn't really get any uh any encouragement to to continue with the teenage opera purely because it was such an expensive thing i think it was the most expensive record made at that point excerpt from the teenage opera in this country
Next we have Kid Rock and Ice Cream Man, and this seems to be an example for me of a a track in the UK that got greater attention with the, the compilations over the last 30 years as opposed to at the time. Yeah, it was completely... Um... It did come out in this country, uh, I think in Belgium as well, but nobody was interested in it at the time. It, it then appeared on a compilation in 1990, Circus Days, and I think it might have been taken from an acetate rather than the actual single. And as you know, if you ever picked up an acetate at a record fair or anywhere like that, you know, you've no idea what its provenance is really. You've no idea what its history is. You've no idea if the name written on the label is the correct name or anything like that. So, yes, it was included as, I think, um, Clover. I think it, the band was named on the, uh, on the compilation, but it is, it is Kid Rock. Um, obviously we now have the internet to guide us on these things and, uh, it did come out in 1973. Again, um, a record that seems to follow on from Teenage Opera. I mean, don't forget, this was six years later. And that would have been, a, nowadays, we, we think of that gap as like a blink of an eye, but that would have been a massive gap at that point, six years. And I, I think the songwriters involved here were looking to, to create a concept album. There are other tracks from it as well that we're, we're scattering around, uh, various compilations. Not enough to do the entire thing, sadly, but um, yeah, a uh, fascinating track. And again, quite dark in that kind of toy town way where the ice cream man seems to be hanging around outside schools. Uh, waiting, was it waiting in the dark outside in the park? Um, so yeah, not everything in the children's garden was rosy, um, but uh, this is a really strong song and you listen to it and you think well surely that could have become a hit you know supported by Radio 1 Kid Rock was that British uh, in terms of the artist they were signed by the guy who was in charge of Young Blood International, which is Mickey Dan's overseas label but they were uh, it was initially a guy called Tony Taylor and then he was joined by another Young Blood contracted songwriter but yes it is British even though it first appeared in Belgium I think that was just uh, Mickey Dallin had more success in Europe than he did in the UK so I think often his stuff would come out first in Europe especially Germany but it is a UK pressing it's a UK recording I don't know I imagine it's there are session men on it but but the actual project is is, uh, is British this is actually an alternative version I think uh, you're playing um, which has got the seagulls added to it um, but yeah it, it's the same backing track same vocal I think uh, that actually came out as a single Riding down the road like a giant toad in rubber boots All the little children they run to him is the ice cream man Sticks his sticky fingers up and grabs their loot In return they get a wave or two from the ice cream man Outside the park in his yellow cart All the little children leaving school See the ice cream man Spend their pocket money On some slushy grub 
In return, they get a wafer or two from the ice cream man. we have next the Piccadilly Line and Emily Small and um, really interesting group this with quite a lineage so this was uh, Rod Edwards and, and Roger Hand that's right yes they later recorded it as Edwards Hand which I always thought when I was young was just a, a really weird name for a group you know who cares about somebody's hand but um, they started off playing together um, and they were signed by um, a guy who also owned Al Stewart he was just starting out at that time. And uh, he managed to place Edwards and Hand, who were recording his Piccadilly line, with CBS. But he'd only agreed to the deal if they took Al Stewart as well. And they didn't really want Al Stewart. And ironically, of course, Piccadilly line did nothing. And Al Stewart went on to be very successful. And Edwards Hand, they worked with George Martin later. That's right, yeah. They were, they were shocked. Um, they were saying that uh, to find out that their first album post-Piccadilly uh, line... A few strings had been pulled and they were going in the studio at Abbey Road with George Martin. And they were kind of completely overawed by the whole thing. Yeah, the the, the first Deborah Tand album is, is, is a nice set. Despite George Martin getting involved, it didn't really find an audience. He had a lot more success a year or two later with America, of course. Piccadilly Line album, Huge World of Emily Small, now is a, a real collectible of the era. It's interesting because um, Piccadilly Lines' album, Huge World of Emily, uh, Emily Small, there or whatever, uh, was collectible even in the oh, late 70s, early 80s. It might have been because of the cover. It's got that gorgeous kind of uh, psychedelic pop artwork. But I do remember first collecting in the 70s, and it was a rare thing even then. Uh, I mean, I used to get lists from people who were doing mail order, who um, subsequently went into like starting shops, people like Bill Allerton. Big City Line album was always a lot more expensive than uh, than anything else. Drift down the line unseen 
For me, one of the great figures of the late 60s era, who are lesser known but involved in, in so much wonderful stuff as an artist as well as in, in, in the back room, and that's John Pantry with the fantastic Glasshouse Green Splinter Red. And Is this a demo version or something like that? This is a demo. He used to do demos because obviously he was working at um, IBC Studios as well. The guy who looked after him, Eddie Trevet, uh, worked in the same building. Then he's had his office in the same building, and so they uh, they formed a liaison. And Eddie Trevet managed to place songs with other people, but also get get John's own groups like Sounds Around. Uh, so Peter and the Wolves, I think it was when uh, when they took up together uh, a recording contract. And John used to engineer things like the Bee Gees uh, albums. And meanwhile, he did carry on writing and obviously he had dead studio time there, which so he, he would record incessantly. Glasshouse Green Splinter Red was given to the Kinsman, but um, this demo version is so far superior. It's amazing that it didn't come out. But then I think John was mainly at that stage a songwriter, even though he was a good singer as well. Was this seen a release before in the John Pantry, a collection of his material? Yeah, well, that, that was me who did that uh, on Tenth uh, Planet Wooden Hill, my, my old labels. Um, so, yeah, I interviewed John. Uh, he was working at uh, Premier Radio at the time, the Christian uh, radio station. And we talked at length about some of the things he'd been involved with. And I think you often find with bands that fans are more interested than the, the bands or the songwriters themselves. And uh, I was saying to him about certain songs, and he was saying, well, are you asking me about something that was no different than me having a cup of a t- cup of tea on a certain day? I would just do it and knock it out, and that would be that. But, uh, yeah, to be able to knock songs like this out in your spare time is a, is a rare gift. A lovely song, and really clever, again, lyrically. Um, he was a very thoughtful songwriter, and I think this is one of his best songs. Iron about 
retirement day a van with a greenhouse came things would be different he could see work was his life life was his pain mustn't let people think they were to blame though he knew it once he dreamed and now he's dead glass house green splinter interesting song released by timothy blue room at the top of the stairs but there's a very strong connection with eric wilson who who later was the leading force behind alan parsons project yeah the late eric wilson was working at the time for southern music he had been working with andrew oldham he wrote things for marianne faithful and chris farlow uh, he also wrote the poet single as well um Wooden Spoon, I think that was his, wasn't it? So anyway, yeah, he uh, he was working for Southern Music. He wrote this song, uh, which was picked up by a guy who was in charge at Sonnet. They just started the UK branch of Sonnet, which is basically a, southern, a, a Swedish um, setup. Um, the British element of it was set up by a guy called Rod Buckle. Now, Rod happened to manage a, a singer called Tom Briggs. So... By these various routes, the, the, everybody was brought together. Eric Wolfson had written Room at the Top of the Stairs. Um, Rod Buckle gave it to Tom Briggs, and it was released as Timothy Blue. And it was recorded in Denmark Street with uh, with the various um, session men from Southern Music. And then, eight years later, Eric Wolfson rewrote it as the cask of Amontillado on the first Alan Parsons Project album. I can see why Eric came back to it, because especially in this first guise, I mean, there were so many songs knocking around in that period, not all of them could have become a hit, but it's instantly catchy. Again, it's quite a clever little song. There's an awful lot of syllables in each line. Uh, and so, yeah, he was able to, because they revisit it and still make it contemporary. Again, uh, a nice song and something that you think could have hit record, but but wasn't, like a lot of these things. Um, just a case of being in the right place at the right time or, or paying the right, right people. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like I say, it does sound very commercial to me. Do 
we have one of my favourites from the era and it's World of Oz, Peter's Birthday brackets, black and white rainbows again, we had uh, room at the top of the stairs earlier for me this this equally catchy a really interesting band World of Oz, round that Birmingham music scene Yes, uh, a couple of years ago I did a, a West Midlands compilation based around the Birmingham bands and we used uh, World of Oz there, but um, obviously they're a perfect fit for, for the Toy Town thing. I mean, even Christopher Christopher Evans renamed himself Christopher Robin for the duration of, of World of Oz. That, to be honest, we, we were spoiled for choice in terms of representing them. The Muffin Man is uh, another lovely kind of uh, Toy Town pop thing. Um but I, one of the reasons I picked this is for that great line they dr- about uh, a small child holding a birthday party. They drank his health in Orange Aid. <laughs> you don't get that in many pop songs. Uh, but you did at, the, at that time. Like I say, the uh, the Toy Town pop sound was was all around, but not many of those things were really hits. Even, even with the Johnson King sleeve note on the album. They're potentially, if they'd have been around a year earlier, maybe that put them at a, a bit of a disadvantage. I, I don't know. I always think that there's more psychedelic pop records made in 68 than actually were in 67 because it took the regional bands a little while to catch up. 
but then you can you can argue it either way. D- to be honest, they might mm. not have written that song a year earlier. I mean, a lot of these bands were saying what's what's popular, what's in vogue. We will do that. I mean, that's always been the way with pop music, obviously. So uh, I I don't know. Um, I mean, don't forget, '68 is when say the herd broke through. Right. Maybe they were just a little bit sounded a little bit louder on the radio. I can imagine this kind of getting a little bit swamped, whereas something like um, From the Underworld had that um, really evocative opening. Yeah, I, I, it's difficult, obviously. We're talking 55 years ago or whatever, but uh, the irony is that they'd all had like a rock background. They'd all been in hard-gigging bands or whatever, and even then the keyboard player ended up in Black Sabbath. So there, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Um, I, I do think there's a little bit of bandwagon jumping there, but but I mean, like I say, 55 years later, who cares whether they're bandwagon jumping or not? As uh, I remember one punk musician saying about punk, um, when people accused him of being a bandwagon jumper, and he said, "Well, apart from the Sex Pistols, everybody everybody was a bandwagon jumper." So I, I think that's true. Also, of the fact that the Beatles, uh, McCartney had popularised things with Penny Lane and one or two of the McCartney songs. And then, then Mark Wirtz had picked up the baton, as it were, for um, the Sienna Opera project. And I think a lot of bands then kind of decided to, to go into that, that vein. That was a, They suddenly stopped playing like seven nights a week or whatever and, and got signed for ludicrous sums of money to uh, to people like Decker who, who didn't really understand what was going on but were just determined they weren't going to miss out.
So now we have one of the uh, bands of the era released quite a bit of material, and that's uh, the Alan Bound or the Alan Bound set. And we have a really lovely uh, B side here, Little Leslie. Yeah, uh, the Alan Bound are a perfect example of what I was just talking about in terms of bandwagon jumping. Um, you know, their, their contract expired in the summer of 67, suddenly. The bands who were playing, like the, the Blue-Eyed Soul, uh, the club bands or whatever, that scene was fading fast, almost overnight, really, um, when Psychedelia came in. And they took two or three months off, and then, like I say, they started wearing caftans. Um, they started writing letters to the music papers about how great the Bee Gees were, and they wrote this. I mean, I, that's a great album. Again, it's very derivative of, of what the Bee Gees were doing. Uh, Little Leslie um, was a B-side. It was written by the guitarist Tony Catchpole, who told me that a few years earlier he'd worked in the Beatles fan club office and he used to have to forge signatures <laughs> because they were just getting inundated with letters asking for autographs, so they all took turns in forging signatures. So, And also, of course, it's got Jess Roden on, on vocals and he's a great singer. So now we have The Shadows, who you wouldn't necessarily expect to be on a, a Titan compilation, but this squarely fits in this uh, this genre. And Dear Old Mrs. Bell, yes, 1968 again. Yeah, like I say, a lot of people were suddenly catching up to what was going on. Um, I imagine The Shadows were keen to move with the times. So like, they hadn't had many hits in the last two or three years. The, the uh, instrumental scene was pretty much dead. Obviously, they had done some vocal stuff before, but... Um, I think this is a deliberate attempt to, to say, right, what's popular and get a song that fitted what was going on. This song 
was written by uh, John... John Bryant. John Bryant, of course, John Bryant. And uh, I think he was very surprised that the Shadows recorded it. But again, it's something that is a little bit twee, as is often the case with, with Toy Town. But you could hear Radio 1 maybe jumping on it, except again, they didn't. Um, so, so yeah, it's a nice little single. And about two or three years later, Shadows did... <laughs> Break up and form Marvin Welch and Farrell, which was much obviously that was a vocal harmony group after Cosby Stills, Nash and Young, but they did have a nice in, uh, vocal mix, um, as you can hear from dear old Mrs. Bell. Yeah, um, there's a there's an interview on the Strange Brew website with uh, John Bryant talking about that track and and that it's a, a true story. And moving on in relation to that, uh, was that Hank Marvin on vocals? Sounds like Hank Marvin to me, but it might be him and Bruce. What? Bruce Welch because they did have a quietly fairly similar sound. That's the thing for me because I'm a big fan of uh, Marvin Welsh and Farrah and mm. I guess they were never going to fully get away from the shadows. I think that eventually what they decided that the shadows were redolent of, of a bygone era and they had to move with the times and they did have that capability there definitely. Marvin Welsh and Farrah ultimately then morphed back into the shadows given the <laughs> yeah. unfortunate you know lack of success. Yeah, again I remember Marmaduke getting quite a lot of play at the time but for some reason it didn't sell. Maybe Hank Marvin, I mean he had the respect for all the musicians who had kind of grown up um emulating him really and you know all the early shadows uh, massive hits. But I think in terms of the wider world, he was seen as a little bit old-fashioned, you know, with the glasses and, and all that sort of stuff. So I, they weren't the hippest bunch around. I mean, they didn't have the same kind of kudos as, as Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young, who looked like proper hippie musicians. Uh, Marvin Watch and Farrell didn't really look like that. <laughs> that Silvery Rain is, uh, is one of my favourites from then. Lovely song. Yeah, they, they they had a lot of um, quality, but like I say, once, um, you know, this is a small country, they were still kind of um, uh, associated with, like, Cliff and his TV shows and all that sort of stuff. They they weren't hip. Mm. And so you wouldn't necessarily, if you were... If you were in a school playground or whatever, I, I can remember all the older lads going around with Groundhog's albums or whatever. <laughs> I don't remember anybody with a Marvin Welch and Farrell album. No. <laughs> like I say, TV, um, that kind of, because Cliff was still doing TV shows and the Shads, you know, yeah. Cliff and the Shads and all that, it was still uh, still a thing. So I think they probably struggled to, to escape that. And then eventually, of course, went back to the Shadows and doing Eurovision. On a mantelpiece, a photograph or two. She gets letters, but they're far between and few. She enjoys her little visits to the zoo. Must be difficult to find enough to do. Dear old Mrs. Bell, everybody knows her well. Never did nobody any wrong. Kids have always called her Ding dong, ding dong Ding dong Since Mr. Bell passed away She spends her day Feeding birds from her hand Says the birds understand She will 
the days when she was young It was then upon the stage she danced and sung Unto all her precious memories she hung It's her memory she likes to be among Did nobody any wrong Kids have always called her Ding dong, ding dong Ding dong Dear old Mrs. It's amazing that this material didn't come out. Frabjoy and the Runcible Spoon, wonderful uh, name here. It's the best seaside in the world, but actually the artists involved much more well-known than you think. Yeah, two guys who um, a few months after this had a hit without Stuart as Hot Legs and then, of course, added Graham Goldman and became 10CC in 1972. Yeah, this is around August 69, summer 69 anyway, uh, it's recorded um, for George Kamelski, who we mentioned earlier, but he, he had his own label, Marmalade, and he was being financed by Polydor. Suddenly he ran out of money, um, and he disappeared in the night. And the tapes were just left behind, and they went back up to Stockport. And like I say, started hanging around at Strawberry Studios, <laughs> recording the uh, sessions for Castnets and Cats, you know, the bubblegum sessions, uh, and then getting a novelty hit with Neanderthal Man. The Frabjoy and the Runcible Spoon, um, newly released under the uh, the Grapefruit label, of course. Yeah, very proud to finally get that out, having wanted it myself since about 1973. Um, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes the only way of getting this stuff is to actually have a label and say, I want to do this. Um, so we had sufficient clout to manage to, to do a deal with, um, with the guys in the band. Um, and yeah, here it is. And um, yeah, it's fabulous, if I do say so myself. They just did two incredibly talented musicians um, at the start of their career, really. It's the best seaside in the world. It's the best seaside in the world. It's the best in the world. The best seaside in the world is the best seaside in the world is the best in the world up in the morning look in the sky how do you feel this morning I feel high I feel high the best seaside in the world is the best seaside in the world is the best in the world Whoa. underneath the surface 
the blessed turquoise sea A shoal of fish are leaving Wait for me, wait for me have a really interesting track from david matthews uncle henry's magic garden i love the titles here david matthews actually was known as um, a, a writer for some songs and involved with releases from some artists that we again you will be familiar with that's right he um he was a, an amateur songwriter really um you know he held down a day job but he also wrote with people like uh, Larry Page has has um, one or two Trog songs I think which have got his name on it. He also wrote "We're Going to Change the World," which is um, "We're Going to Change the World" by Matt Monroe. Um, sadly, we couldn't license that; otherwise, this should be on there. But uh, he wrote "Cousin Jane" and "Number Ten Down the Street" for the Trogs. He wrote for Alan Price as well. Yeah, again, um, very unpleasant subject matter, really, um, based on child murders that took place at the time. He wrote this. Uh, he wrote this song just after, just after the end of those, uh, the end of those murders. And he was kind of mentored by by two very successful songwriters, Roger Cook and Roger Greenway. Uh, now this was a demo, a purely a songwriter's demo, and so because of that reason, I think it's Roger Cook who's actually singing. Obviously later. He, he, he had hits as half David, uh, David and Jonathan, and then went on to uh, to Blue Mink, obviously. But uh, you know, wrote like Teach the World to Sing and all that sort of thing. So um, yeah, yeah, massively successful songwriter. This is him helping out another songwriter. You know, he's actually a chartered accountant by profession. And as David himself has said, you know, there aren't many people even at that point in time who would have helped a fellow uh, fellow writer to progress. Um, Sadly, nothing came of this, but um, a very, very interesting, very dark song. Oh, no. 
to dark songs presented in such a beautiful manner we have tim and the bitter thoughts of little jen which for me is one of the classics of the era again one of the definitive toy town pop things uh, before anybody had even thought to call it toy town um yeah i love this song i don't think tim and dog himself is too keen but uh artists never know too much about what's good or what's bad i think it sold dreadfully at the time but i didn't stop apple being interested in him. Uh, and I, I believe Paul McCartney asked him to re-record this. And he was a bit indignant and he wouldn't do it. So he didn't last much longer. Uh, Apple as a songwriter. Yeah, yeah, just uh, again, a, a very dark lyric um, about an abused, disturbed child um, wreaking vengeance on her playmates. Yeah, this is just after Mary Bell was convicted of the murders of two preschool children. Um, allegedly, this has got John Paul Jones and Jimmy Page on it, um, but they're keeping quiet about it, oddly. It did amuse me that, that Timmel didn't really like this much, and he, he later complained that the record company were trying to make him sound like the, the monkeys, you know. Well, that, that, I think that'd be fine for most of us, but didn't didn't work for him, and obviously he later went on to record and, and, and uh, worked with Joe Strummer just before the uh, the clash came together. Yeah. Uh, just after as well. Yeah. Tim and Dog's still very active in, in music and uh, he's going on tour in, in November with the Nightingale. So <laughs> I, I oh, doubt, right. very much doubt he will be uh, be singing The Bitter Thoughts of Little Jane, sadly. It would be nice my... just to go, just to shout out to him, Bitter Thoughts of Little Jane. That would be a shock, but uh, no. <laughs> I don't think he will sing it, no. I don't think it fits his punk ethos. No, I did like Lose This Skin. Um yeah, yeah. I, I again, he didn't really have any success with uh, with this, or as a songwriter with Apple or with Threshold. You know, the Booty, Moody Blues own label. So again, there's nothing really for him to hold on to from that. Whereas he did get some kind of uh, recognition when he was hanging around with Joe Strummer. <laughs> The bitter thoughts of little Jane are locked away and will remain unspoken. Being let down and kicked around, being sent away, 
without her token, but she'll find her place. She'll find a head to pound on. Never cries or even tries, so no one really knows she wants to die. Been too long. Majority One, and again, just a wonderful track, Rainbow Rocking Chair here. And some people, if they've got some Barry Ryan singles, they will, if they look in more detail, see the majority on some of those tracks. But in their own right, they were a, a fine group. Yeah, they'd recorded a lot of singles for Decca as, as the majority. Um, didn't really get anywhere. I think they had like eight or nine singles, which didn't get anywhere. Uh, and they were placed with Barry Ryan, who just I think just gone solo uh, after after singing with his brother Paul. And uh, yeah, their first record together was Eloise. Sadly, that didn't last too long. In fact, they were recording with Tony Blackburn just a short while later, which is probably why they went off to Europe afterwards. <laughs> but yes, then they became majority one after their manager at the time wanted to add a girl singer, and for some reason, they managed to resist attempts to get into the group. But they still ended up with the name Majority Plus One, uh, even though there was no Plus One. Um, so yeah, they um, they had singles and a couple of albums in in various European territories. Didn't really get anything out over here. But again, there's there's some really nice songs on that album, and this is one of them. So much great stuff, especially in that that Majority One era. Not only Rainbow Rocking Chair, you've got uh, Because I Love, which I think was a as a hit on the continent somewhere and if that material is still around I'd heartily recommend all of that yeah they were very talented as songwriters they made one or two records under aliases as well I used their their cover version of No Matter What the Bad Fungus song on a on the recent Power Pop compilation yeah lots of talent but not in the right place at the right time or not in this country anyway as you say I think they did have one or two minor hits in other territories they even had an album that album came out in Brazil and I think they did have a, a minor hit over there as well, which is why the album came out. But yeah, like I say, uh, it, it was very difficult to, to make a splash in this country. There were so many good, good quality groups around the late 60s. 
and you didn't really have much chance if you then left the country. So yeah, like I said, they didn't. I don't think they even got a single out over here as as majority one anyway. I thought it was very fitting to play Time to Go Home by the Tots. Behind the Tots was uh, some familiar names, uh, particularly uh, John Carter. Yeah, there wasn't much room behind the Tots, but um, John Carter managed to squeeze in there. And yeah, it's basically him under an alias, and one of many aliases. And this was initially a jingle for Green Tree's Tots. This is always weird to me because it's written, according to the credits, by John and his wife, Jill Shakespeare. But it's exactly the same song. And the same chorus and the same title as, as the closing song on Andy Pandy, which we all grew up with. I don't know if he might have got into trouble if that had been a hit. Maybe it's just as well it wasn't, but uh, yeah, a sweet little song, even if it is the theme tune from Andy Pandy. These were the days when, whether it was um, a short song that was a TV theme or a commercial, the songs on there had to be very, very strong because that was a way of either marketing the TV show or, or the product. That's right. I think by the about mid seventies, the advertising industries had cottoned onto the fact that they could commission a thirty second jingle, and that would reach the pop kids much better than than anything else. Really, um, pop music was was the language of the day really in advertising. So, uh, yeah, I, I, there's a lot of songs like that out there. You know, "Jeans On" by David Dundas is the obvious one, but. Um, I remember Come to CNA, which became Where Were You Today, which again was, was Roger Cook, who we just mentioned, 
Uh, and and John John Carter did an awful lot of songs at that time for for the advertising industry, and they probably made more money from that than they did from having a hit record. Yeah, sorry, the the, the Round Trees um, jingle was the other side, the A side. Um, Please yourself, I think, but yeah, so time to go home is a bit too maudlin for for, for a jingle. But um, yeah, yeah, nice little song. And again, you think, well, it's a bit of a shame to hide it away on the B side at that point. But uh, John had so many releases coming out. I mean, at the same time as this, he just released Beach Baby. So yeah, I mean, which one are you going to concentrate on? That was just in the US top thirty at that point when this came out. Uh, Eventually got to the top five. So um, so yeah, it's just like pocket money, I guess. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time, David, as always. Uh, hugely recommended, a long-awaited compilation, because I'm not sure there has been a, an official set that has uh, collected much of the Toy no, Town sound. That's right. We were going to do it in about 2006-2007 with Sanctuary when I was working there, uh, working for them anyway. Um, but then they got into financial trouble and were bought up by Universal, who weren't interested, so... So it's taken a long while to get around to it, 15 years or so, but eventually it's out there anyway, and um, hopefully it'll do well, because there's plenty of stuff for a second volume. <laughs> I'll look forward to that. Thank you again. OK, yeah. Bye. for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests 
to support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.